Thank you for listening to another conversation on the All About You podcast. When I started this podcast in December 2020, I had no idea what would happen and I thought a lot about the following questions. Will anyone listen to my All About You podcast? Would I find anyone who would be willing to be a guest? And will I enjoy doing the podcast? So after having over 20 guests on the podcast, I now know the answers to these questions. Yes, people are listening. And yes, people are willing to be a guest. However, I had no idea about the education and sheer enjoyment I would receive from all the amazing conversations I have with the guests. And yes, I absolutely love doing the podcast. So I want to say to all the brilliant guests and the wonderful listeners, a big thank you for all your support and encouragement with the podcast. I also want to say a huge thank you to my husband, Pete, who without his help and assistance with the technology and his patience and support, I would not have the All About You podcast. So thank you, Pete. You are an absolute star. So don't forget, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch. So let's get cracking with this week's conversation. So welcome to another conversation on the All About You podcast. And today my conversation is with Sarah and she's a lifelong David Bowie fan. So Sarah, welcome to All About You podcast. Hello Sheila, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So Sarah, my first question, David Bowie? David Bowie. David Bowie. Yeah, he pronounced it that way because he got his name from um, Jim Bowie who was some American Wild West person. In fact, there's a thing called a Bowie knife. And um, they might pronounce it Bowie, but he pronounced it Bowie. Um, He had to change his name, in fact. Do you remember the monkeys? I do. Right. Well, there was a Davy Jones in the monkeys. That's right. And Bowie's real name is um, David Robert Jones. So when he started becoming famous, somebody said, oh, you know, you've got to change your name because there's already another Davy Jones who's, who's very famous. So he did. So when did David Bowie's career start then? Well, um, when he was very young, really. Apparently, everything is apparently. Apparently, he always wanted to be a star. He was very set on becoming famous. And he had heard um, Little Richard when he was quite young. He was about 10 or something, and he was just blown away by Little Richard. And that might have been the moment that he decided, I want to do something like that. He heard the song Tutti Frutti, which you may remember. Oh, God, I'm, I'm yeah. not going to sing it. You're making me very <laughs> old now, Sarah. I remember all these things. Well, hang on. We're about the same age, Sheila. Okay? <laughs> so he heard that and he was completely blown away. And um, as a little anecdote, his wife, Iman, um, for one of their wedding anniversaries, she actually found one of Little Richard's suits and presented it to her husband on the anniversary. And Bowie said that it was enormous, the suit was enormous. So it makes me think that Little Richard probably wasn't as little in stature as people, as his name might suggest. Wow. So yeah. when did you discover David then? When did you, as a teenager or? Yeah, preteen. 
Yes, it's funny because Bowie discovered Little Richard when he was 10 and I actually discovered Bowie when I was 10 and it was thanks to my sister. Um, this was 1971, so now you can just do the quick calculation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but she gave it to me. I think it must have been for my birthday in August or for the following Christmas and she said, oh, I think you might like this. I don't know why she thought I might like it. So she presented me with The Man Who Sold the World. You know, that was the first I knowingly heard of him. Because later I did realize, of course, Space Oddity had come out in about 1969, the time of the Apollo 11, the moon landing. So Bowie's song Space Oddity became very famous after, after the moon landing. So I might have heard that before, but not knowingly. And I was just blown away, blown away. Because that song, Space Odyssey, is just incredible. Whether it was made ahead of its time, whether there were the yeah, influences, the, I don't know. The musical instruments on it um, are slightly, slightly strange. And you've just made a slip of the tongue calling it Space Odyssey because, in fact, it's called Space Oddity. Ah. But the idea comes from the Kubrick, um, the Kubrick movie. Oh, right, yes. yes. exactly. So, <laughs> so it obviously um, reminded you of that. So you were very young mm -hmm. when you first discovered him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and as I say, that was, that was it, really. There was no going back after that. I was absolutely starstruck, I suppose. So you had posters on your wall? Um, well, to tell you the truth, I went to a boarding school. And so we weren't allowed to have posters. So what we had was the old um, cassette recorder. So when I was that age, we had, a, we had cassette recorders. It was about all we were allowed to have. And as I got a little older, I had everything on cassette. And I just remember listening to it under the pillow at night because we had to have the lights off and everything. And I remember um, as we were a little bit older, 13 or 14, after summer, um, everybody would bring back any LPs they had been given over the holidays and we used to sit around in the sitting room looking at these enormous LPs. Remember how big they were? Yeah, well that's it. I mean, often they came with a booklet, sometimes they were sort of a double yeah, the thing with all the lyrics and everything, yeah. Yeah, that was it, yeah. And the lyrics, we used to pour over the lyrics, saying, oh, that's what they're saying, and we used to learn them. And these 12-inch covers were so beautiful. It was something so special to have these vinyl records and to share them around. Oh, I've got this. Oh, you've got that. I've got this. And we were all introducing each other to new music. And it was something that was so special. And I'm sure everybody always says this about the current generations. But they don't have that with music, you know. For us, it was so special. And uh, saving up our pennies to go down to the WH Smiths to buy these albums and then to, you know, open them lovingly. And nowadays it's just all on your iPod and people don't appreciate so much the work that's gone into making an album. There's not so much, I don't know, it's not such a ritual anymore. I think the thing is, isn't it, we're talking here from buying an album, we've gone through CDs, now we're downloading and now we're on to things like Spotify and things like that, people are streaming their music. So when we saved up our money, and we all did it, we saved up our pocket money, our birthday, Christmas money, mm -hmm. went out and bought the album, you looked at the lyrics sometime, there was information inside, 
um, yeah, I mean, it was a treasure. Really and, and you looked after the records because mm -hmm. if you didn't, they got scratched and that was it. Yeah. Yes. Um, I read a book recently by David Hepworth, which was a bit of a nostalgia drive. He said something that made me laugh and I could really, you know, I, I understood what he was saying completely. That you'd be going down the street and you'd see somebody with a bag of the right shape and you always thought, ooh, I wonder what that person's bought, you know? And you'd be craning your neck to see if you could see what they'd bought. And it was real, that curiosity. And I just remember doing that. And the other day I bought an album. There's a lovely shop in, in Valencia where you can buy albums. And I was walking down the street with my, with my bag and thinking, nobody cares what I've got in my bag. <laughs> but back then it, somebody would have said, oh, you've been to a record shop and I wonder what you've got. Yeah, but I think vinyl's making a comeback still, isn't it? I mean, I heard a couple of years ago, yeah, vinyl's the new thing because people are missing that putting it on a turntable and the turntable sales started to, to go through the roof. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I still use, I've still got all, all my old vinyl and I've got a turntable which I use. Um, I have to admit, I don't use it every day. There's still that thing that you forget that it's just one side. And suddenly you say, oh, it's stopped. Why is it stopped? Oh, I've got to turn it over. <laughs> and I remember arguing with my brother, oh, it's your turn to turn it over. No, it's yours. Having to get up off the comfy sofa. But there is that, that nostalgic thing, you know, and they're so heavy. Vinyls really are wonderful. So you're still adding to your vinyl collection now? Yes, yes, I am, yeah. So are you getting new artists on vinyl? Yes, or? I am too, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't just, you can't have a one-track mind, as it were. There's Bowie and there is more as well. There was a time when it was only Bowie and I was a real snob. And then I realised, you know, I was missing out on stuff. So, yes, I do buy new stuff. Mm -hmm. So, have you ever been to one of his concerts? Yep. I have been to three. Um, one of them was at Earl's Court in London. And this was... Um, the station to station tour. Then I've been. To, I went to two in Madrid. No, one in Madrid and one in in Zaragoza. And they were all they were all amazing. So tell me about these concerts. I mean, the costumes, the lighting. Was it a show? Show? Yeah. Well, the one in Madrid was a real show. Show, as you put it, because it was the Glass Spider tour, and it it was amazing. It was you know fantastic. You had David Bowie coming out of well, the sky, it looked like, on this huge glass spider. Everything was beautifully choreographed. You know, nothing was out of place. So it was a wonderful show. But I actually preferred the first concert and the last one. And the first one, because I was much younger, and it was just like, wow, there he was. And um, it was incredibly special. And the last one in Zaragoza, which was 1997, was wonderful too because actually there weren't very many people and I could go quite close to the front and it was a wonderful show without so many special effects and things. I think that's the thing with concerts isn't it? Back in the day when we were teenagers and I remember going to see David Essex mm -hmm. at Portsmouth Guildhall, mm -hmm. there was literally a stage, mm -hmm. you had the musicians, you had some lights and then you would have had his band no special effects. Mm -hmm. When you look at concerts now, I mean, yes, they are incredible, but they are more of a production 
than a concert. And I remember um, before we left the UK, we went to see Jamie Cullum in concert at Portsmouth Guildhall. So right the way back to where we saw David Essex. And again, very, very cut back. He was on stage with the piano, his musicians, no particular lighting, no costumes, nothing, you know, just everybody sort of turned up in what they felt comfortable in mm-hmm. on stage. And, you know, we were sort of sitting there and we could hear some music. The next minute he just came down the aisle shaking people's hand, people were taking pictures. Yeah, experience. And, and, and for me, it was just cut back to his music mm-hmm. and him. There wasn't what I call bells and whistles and a mm-hmm. big production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you've been from one extreme to the other. So when well, you went to that first concert, yeah, how no. old were you? Uh, um, 16, yeah, 16. Oh, okay. But it was still mega, because the yes. court is massive, okay? It's not it's not the roundhouse, where I saw the Stranglers. That was my first. Do you remember the Stranglers? I do remember yeah. the Stranglers. That was my first concert. Oh, wow. And that was really, that was really sweaty. That was great, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we were right up at the front, and that was very basic. So no, the Earl's Court one was quite a quite an event as well. Um, but the whole performance thing, you know, David Bowie always regarded himself first and foremost as, um, as a performer. He was very into mime, for example, and he enjoyed the cabaret kind of, um, the cabaret side of everything, you know? And he never really said he was a musician. He said, you know, I can play instruments fairly well, but he said, to be a musician, you have to really master your instrument. He says, I can play okay. You know, he plays, his first instrument was the saxophone, um, which his father bought him because his father was quite interested in music too. His father bought it for him and Bowie paid him back. He got a job, apparently, from a butcher, a butcher's shop making deliveries. So he paid his father back for the sax, tenor sax. But he never said, I can play anything very well. In later, you could see that he could play the piano well, the guitar, probably other bits and pieces too. But he really enjoyed the performing side of it. And I think with David Bowie, he was always reinventing himself before reinvention became a thing. Yeah. I think he was one of the first that I'm going through this period, I'm going through that period. and That's true. And of course, most people think that the first period was Ziggy Stardust. But uh, what not everybody knows is that he was in nine bands before that. You know, before the spiders from Mars, he was in the Conrads, the King Bees, the Manish Boys, the Lower Third, the Buzz, the Hype, wow. Feathers. So it's a bit like people think, oh, he's an overnight success, but actually he'd been around for 10, 15 years beforehand. It took him about 10 years um, to, to do it. He went from like being uh, a bit bluesy to being a mod to then being a hippie. So if you look online, you can see his all kinds of photographs, short hair, long hair. He actually founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Men with Long Hair. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> when he was about 16, he was on television. Um, there was a TV program with uh, Cliff Mitchell Moore. Yeah, you remember like him, yeah. It's, it's quite funny. It's a, the quality is terrible, but you can see him saying, you know, we're fed up with people saying, can I carry your handbag? And he said, it's, it's got to stop, it's got to stop. So he went through all these stages. He was interested in performing, poetry, sitting down cross-legged on the ground, folksy stuff, 
all that kind of thing. And none of it really worked very well. That's the thing. I mean, did he have any training, drama training or singing training or anything? No singing training. Drama training? He, I don't know if you've ever heard of Lindsay Kemp. Lindsay Kemp died fairly recently, but he, he taught mime. And uh, so Bowie had a, a few years with him learning, and he did things like Piero, the Thrapani Opera, things like that, um, which actually, I, I really don't like mime. There's something about it I really, don't, <laughs> I really don't like. But it stood him in good stead for the Ziggy character, because um, the Ziggy character was just pure... It wasn't Bowie at all. That's what I've never understood. Can you explain to me, was it like a separate person he created or was it a theatrical character? He, I, I just don't understand that, that at all. Well, apparently he was, he was quite a shy person really, although you, you know I can hardly believe that's true. But he said he was a shy person. So he went into persona so that he could transmit all these things he wanted to transmit. And so Ziggy was like a mixture of several different things. He said the name came from, he was on a train one day, looking out of the train, Ziggy's hairdressing. He thought, oh, okay. And then there was somebody called the legendary Stardust Cowboy in the States. And he thought, okay, so Ziggy Stardust, that sounds good together. And then the orange hair, you probably remember. Yeah. He's seen that on the cover of um, Honey magazine mm -hmm. and thought, I'm going to take that. And then the whole thing about um, being a tragic hero, he got it from um, some, some other person who had been very popular and then descended into drugs and thought he was God. And he thought, oh, that sounds quite interesting. I'm going to use that for the Ziggy character as well. And he'd done some kabuki theatre. He'd seen some crazy clothes. So he just mixed everything together and thought, I'm going to create this persona who's like a prophet. People are going to love him and then they're going to kill him. Because some of the lyrics um, mirror that, that thinking. You know, we had to break up the band. So that was him, really. So he was just taking influences from a sign on a shop, something he saw in a magazine, uh, something he saw in the street and just created a, a persona mm -hmm. out of all these different pieces. Yeah. And he himself says that it got a little bit too much. It was quite funny because his band, lots of his, the Spiders from Mars, lots of them are from the north. You know, Mick Ronson was from Hull. And they were just really normal people. And he said to them, look, you know, you're going to have to put on these clothes. And um, they were like, you know, I can't do the northern accents, but you can imagine they were kind of saying, what? That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and they all did it. They all did it. These kind of working class lads from, you know, from normal homes just said, well, okay, we'll do it and see what happens. Because this was to create the, the, whole, the whole thing, the, yeah. the whole feeling of it and the visuals and yeah. everything. And amazingly, because, I mean, um, Starman was probably the first after Space Oddity. I mean, Space Oddity came first. And then there was a kind of hiatus where there was nothing really was happening and people thought he'd been like a one-hit wonder. And then Starman appeared on Top of the Pops and suddenly he was, a, he was a star. That was it. And I think that Top of the Pops um, show, which I can't remember having seen because I was at school, you know, he was draping his arm around Mick Ronson and then making suggestive movements to the guitar. And people were horrified. You know, they're like, oh my God. 
So people were kind of um, saying, who is this person? And then he came out and said, um, oh, I'm gay. And this was 1972, and homosexuality was still a crime in England until 67. So only five years had passed, you know, since he could have been thrown in prison. Anyway, the fact is, he's, he's not, he wasn't gay, but he thought, oh, what can I add to this um, to make it more compelling? And there was a rejection on one side, but this, um, this star man appearance on Top of the Pops made a lot of young people realize, okay, so he's doing this, he's dressing up, he's wearing makeup, he's putting his hand, his arm around another guy, and he's admitting he's gay. Okay, maybe I can finally admit that I am different as well. And so many people have said that since that um, performance on Top of the Pops, they felt liberated and they felt that they could actually show who they really were, you know, gay people, bisexuals, people who didn't know they were gay. They thought, oh, at last, at last. So he opened the door for so many people. I mean, that's incredible because I do remember sort of the glam rock days and you had bands like The Sweet mm -hmm, and The Platform right. Shoes mm -hmm. and all the skin-tight lycra outfits and the hair and all the mm -hmm. rest of it. You know, as a teenager, I absolutely loved it. Our parents are like, oh, my God, you oh, know. Yeah, exactly. And, and I remember when Top of the Pops was on, I think it was like 7 o'clock on a Thursday, right, Mum and Dad, out the lounge, the TV is mine for about the next 30 minutes because... Your parents are just sitting there going, what's he wearing? What's she doing? Why is she... Why is <laughs> yes, okay. it all. <laughs> exactly. You just go out, give me half an hour just to do my thing with Top of the Pops because it was the only music programme on at that time yeah, yeah, for yeah. many, many years. Yeah. And you were seeing all this glam rock stuff. I mean, one of my favourites was the Glitter Band. I thought they were oh, amazing. Gary, Gary Glitter. Well, not so much Gary Glitter, but Glitter Band did their own album. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I remember a friend bought that album for me. Oh, my God, that was one of my treasures. I mean, all this stuff must be available on YouTube yes, now. I mean, course, the amount of old yeah. stuff you, mm -hmm. you can find on there now. Yeah. So he really then was a pioneer for young people to say, look, you can be who you want to be, as in how you look, how you dress, and whatever your sexuality yeah. is. So he was really yep. saying, look, you know. That's it. And he was quite brave because apparently at that time, even, you know, even people in show business were a little bit reluctant to, to recognize any of this. Um, but he thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk it. And it worked out very well for him, you know. So if we look back to that time, we had David Bowie, we had the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I mean, the Rolling Stones had started in uh, <laughs> 1962. And the Beatles were over by that time. That's the amazing thing. The Beatles were 60 to 70. Yeah, it was, it was you know, it took me a long time to realise this, that the Beatles had come and gone and they needed something new was definitely needed. And, of course, the Stones were there. But, of course, there were loads of other people around already, you know, um, Neil Young, people like that, Bob Dylan, they were all around, weren't they? But um, So David Bowie was born in the UK? He was. He was born in Brixton, moved to Bromley, and then to Beckenham. So. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So pretty suburban, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. I think he liked to say he was from Brixton. I think he was just born in Brixton, but okay. it sounded a bit more rough, perhaps, than Bromley. He, uh, 
Beckenham, yeah. He went to, where did he go? He went to art college, I think, in Bromley, actually. And then in Beckenham, he started up this arts lab, which was the hippie, the hippie thing. And still, even now, um, every year, I think, they have a, a festival in his name, um, just to, to honour him. The bandstand where he played all those, all those years ago. So roughly how many albums did he do in total? Uh, studio albums, 25. 25? Yep. But there's a lot of live albums, and now there's a whole lot of bootleg albums coming out. And for somebody like me, it's like, oh my God, where do I stop? Because, um, you know, some of the bootleg albums have been brought out by, by labels, so they've been edited a bit and the quality is not too bad, but others are still kind of bootleg sound, but everything's coming out of the woodwork now. I mean, it is lovely, you know, because you can hear everything as it was back then, and you can hear him talking and joking, but there's so much out there now for sale. It's incredible. So you've got all of the 25 studio albums. Yeah, I had a little count. I've got about 100 albums. So these have been collected over the years, though, Sarah, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. The first one in 1971. Um, and then I've got lots of singles too, and lots of strange singles. And then there's all kind of picture discs. Um, oh my God, you had picture discs. Yeah. And then they started bringing stuff out on red vinyl, green and blue. Yeah, and... to tell you the truth, I really hate that. <laughs> I find the old black vinyl, the good quality, I think it's 180 grams. This is the best. And so often of the, so often these um, coloured vinyls are very... They bend very easily, they warp very easily, and you think it's a real gimmick. And that's the problem nowadays, you know. How can we get more money out of the fans? Not just Bowie fans, but what can we do now? Exactly, and because they've got to keep the, the, the machine going, basically. So, right, we need, we need some new yeah. thing to produce These the money. Compilation things. Anyway, I won't get into complaining about that. Um, so not only have I got all the albums, I've got loads of singles, and then you'll be horrified to hear, I've got about 60 books. So lots of them are just photograph books, but then other ones are, you know, about his life, or, for example, interviews with him, quotations. And then there's other things like, do you remember Where Is Wally? Yes, the okay. dentist always had a Where is Wally poster on the, on the, okay. the ceiling. Well, yeah. There's a book, which is Where is Bowie. Oh, my God. <laughs> Do you remember those um, paper dolls you could get with the little dresses? Oh, you used you to could... put the tabs to put the clothes on, yeah. One of those. Oh, oh, one of those. <laughs> so where are you sourcing this stuff now? I mean, are you on eBay? and? Yeah, eBay. Then, um, where else do I go? Well, for books, obviously, you know, book depository or something. Um, and then there's some really dangerous places like, well, just websites like Etsy where people make things. Right. And it's just, but what is a real eye-opener is how many people feel that he is worth making a doll about or a painting or making a mask or making some jewellery. You know, I'm wearing these today which um, you may not recognise because it's quite subtle. So these are earrings we're looking at. Yeah, yeah. this is, um, this is the, his last album, which is called Black Star. This is, you know, the artwork on it. It actually is, just says D-A-V-I-D, although you can't see that it does because it looks like stars and patterns. So 
And then you've got things like this, which somebody made, you know, the black stuff. So star. you've got a necklace. Yeah. So in your house, you've got the cushion, you've got the mug, you've yeah. got the print on the wall. <laughs> I call it my Bowie Fernalia. Okay. So I've got, let me just see. <laughs> I did actually write down what I had. It's just oh, totally perfect. ridiculous. Um, somewhere. Okay. So these are things that people have given me or I've bought, but presents. People say, oh, I saw this and I thought of you. Lighters. Somebody brought me some matches from Croatia. I've got socks. I've got several diaries. Um, the most ridiculous thing I've got are cake toppers. All right, yeah. There's little round things made yeah, out of yeah, yeah. rice paper. So I've got cake toppers. Um, I've got cookie cutters as well, you know, so I can make Ziggy Stardust biscuits if I like. Kitchen towels. One of our teachers, when she left, she gave me a periodic table of Bowie with all his albums. I've got mugs, obviously. Um, I've got shirts. I've got dresses. I've got leggings. I've got shoes. So hang on a second. <laughs> I can understand the pens. I can understand the diaries. I don't understand the shoes and the dresses. Explain the David Bowie shoes and dresses to me. Sarah. Well, these shoes that I'm wearing, I mean, they're very subtle because it's the black. Right. And the other ones I've got just, um, what do they say? On, they actually say space oddity on them. And then there's a pattern on them which may or may not be recognised by anybody who doesn't love David Bowie. And the clothes and things. Well, this is where I mean that it's fascinating how many people think it's worth doing something with him. There's a lovely website where artists um, send their drawings and the, their drawings and paintings and work are made into fabric. So you can make you know, curtains or duvet covers, whatever you want. And you just go in there and you type in Bowie. And it's amazing how many people have made David Bowie fabrics. So you, know, you can order the fabric and you can go to your dressmaker and say, can you just um, whip me up something, please? So I've got a couple of David, I've got a couple of shirts and a dress and um, some leggings some... well i must just say here <laughs> we are both sitting here socially distancing with our face masks on and i do actually have my mouth wide open listening to you talking about and my visualization is you can have curtains the bedspread you've yeah. got cushions the mugs i haven't got curtains i have to admit i have you curtains. could do somebody yes, has created do. the yeah. fabric to yeah. actually so you could just live your life in, in a David zone yes, with could. just about yeah. everything. Mm -hmm. His face, something from an album, some lyrics or something. Yeah, yeah. It would be very easy. It's amazing what people have done. Amazing. But I think that's actually quite nice mm -hmm. because I think we've all got things we've grown up with, particularly and I think as teenagers, you love the music you grew up with because yeah. it's full of your memories. Mm -hmm. And you carry that music. I mean, you know, I love disco. So even now, I still think disco is the best music going. You know, millennials are going to have something different. So we've all generally got fond memories of the music and the, the singers, the groups, the personalities of that time. Exactly, what it meant to us at that time. Because when people say, oh, what's your favourite song? It's like, it's impossible for me to say, because each period of my life, because if you think about it, it's... It's 50 years with Bowie that I've had. So each period of my life has been very, very different. So obviously, the way a song can speak to you when you're 14, 15, a newer song of his wouldn't speak to me in the same way. 
I'd have a more adult approach to it, perhaps. But even now, when I listen to things like Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, I can I go right back to when I was that age, and I have that same kind of feeling as, as you might with you know disco music, for example. Mm. You probably want to you know dance crazily. Oh, that regularly called dancing around the kitchen while yeah. I'm cooking dinner. Absolutely. Yeah. But anything you hear later, I mean, I, there, I, there's some fantastic bands now around. But I approach the music in a different way. It doesn't mean quite so much to me. Uh, you know, so it's impossible to say which of David Bowie's songs, or even albums I like most, because it really depends, depends, you know, on the age. And, and I guess as well, because he's done such a, a range of different music, what do you feel like listening to today? You know, what period of his life did you want to go to? And what period of your life do you yeah. want to go back when you were a teenager? Yeah, or? yeah that's, that's actually, that's very, that's very true. Because I do love things like Ziggy Stardust, but I don't listen to them perhaps as often as I do other, his other albums, simply because the emotional, it's a bit draining sometimes actually. When I put on Ziggy Stardust or Hunky Dory or Aladdin Sane, it's quite draining because I seem to go right back to those teen years. All the teen anguish. Yeah, I think that must be it. I think it, even though it's on a very subconscious level, it is strange, you know, very strange. I, I think that is to do with the power of music, though. And music is so emotional. Mm. And, you know, often when we're watching sort of something on the TV and it's Top of the Pops going back to 1983, and, oh, I love this song, and you're singing along with it, and you're almost lyric perfect, mm. and you yeah, think... Yeah. <laughs> Okay, how can I remember something going back all that time? But if you asked me what I did yesterday, I'd have to, you know. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. And, and I, I guess because you, you know, you were singing those songs all the time, they were on the radio all the time, mm. you know, you had the posters and you were really into whatever your thing was. Yeah. And, and you just picked it all up mm. quite easy. And it, it just gets in your brain, I guess. It does. And also the feeling, my own feeling for Bowie at the time. You know, I really adored him. Talk about first love. And that's another feeling, isn't it, really? Oh, that yeah. is anguish like there is no other, the exactly. first love. Oh. Yeah. So, but then later albums of his, I mean, like, for example, Outside, which is the most, it's an amazing album. He, at that time, was a different person. So, and I was older, so kind of my, I can't even call it relationship, but you know what I mean. The way I approached the album and the way I approached him at that time was different. It's a very intelligent album, but I hear it in a different way. And in a way, and this sounds very strange, I can enjoy it more because I haven't got that terrible, as you said before, anguish. I can actually sit back and enjoy the music and him as an older, as an older person. Yes, it's a strange. It's a so strange Sarah, thing. can we talk a little bit about his, his personal life? From what I can remember, he was married to Angie. Yep. American woman, yeah. So she was American. Yeah, and um, he needed her. People are very fond of speaking badly about her, you know. But at that time, he really needed somebody like her because she was a real businesswoman. And he probably wouldn't have been able to focus or deal with um, managers or whatever as much if she hadn't been around. So she was in his life for 10 years. And whatever anybody wants to say, she really pushed him um, towards, you know, his... Uh, stardom. So he was able to focus on the creative side and she took care of the business side and... Well, I don't know how much she took care of. She was um, she was very outspoken and she, I don't think she 
took any, um, <laughs> I can't think of a polite word. <laughs> she didn't allow anybody to... So did she not have his them. best interests at heart? Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. I so they so. were they were romantically involved? Oh, yeah, 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 they were. Yeah, they so were. they started as a business relationship and then no, it... I think it was the other way around. Oh, I think right. they started as, as a romantic relationship and then she, she took over. I mean, I don't know how much of the business side she did, but from what I've read, she was very pushy. So okay. she could get deals or she could get people to do things. That's what I understand. And I think she was quite unbearable for many of the people around Bowie. That's what I have read. Um, so they had children together? They did. They had a little boy who they called at the time Zoe. Right, yeah, I remember that. Right. Then he, then it was changed, I don't know for how long, for, to Joey, maybe right. when he first went to school. And then it, he changed his name to Duncan. Maybe his name was... Zoe Duncan in the first place, I'm not sure, but he, now his name is Duncan Jones, and he's famous in his own right. I don't know, he's a film director, oh, Okay. and I don't know if you've ever heard of a film called Moon, or Source Code. No. They're both, they're both good movies. Oh, from him, from yeah. his son. Yeah, yeah. and he's a, he seems to be a really sweet guy, really, really pleasant and down to earth. He's married to an American woman, I think, and they've got two kids. And unfortunately, you know, Bowie had died before the first grandson was born. And the first grandson is named after the grandpa, Stenton, and then David Jones. And now they've got a little girl as well who is actually called Zoe. So it's wow. kind of, yeah, so it's also the history yeah. repeating itself. Yeah. Was he living in America when he was with Angie? Uh, part of the time. Okay, so between the UK and America. Yep, he, he went to America after, after Ziggy Stardust. He went to America. I mean, he killed Ziggy Stardust after a year. Um, he did this at the end of a concert, and even his band were like, what was going on? It's the last concert? They didn't know, and they were quite upset. But then when they went to the USA, that's when Aladdin Sane was born. And Aladdin Sane really was um, um, just a, a prolongation of Ziggy. Bowie said he felt that Ziggy Stardust was, was killing him. It was getting too much. He couldn't tell which was David and which was Ziggy. But then, of course, Aladdin Sane came along, which was just like, um, you know, American, American Ziggy. Um, and that's in the United States. He had a pretty, pretty wild time because somebody had said to him, you know, if you want to be big in the States, you've got to act big. And they spent a huge amount of money, and um, he went fairly bankrupt. You know, there were wild parties and everything. He went through a very, very bad time after that. Just to mention another woman in his life, because I think uh, the person who really saved him was his, I was going to say his current wife, but obviously his, um, his widow, Iman. He married her in, I think it was 92. And by all accounts, they had a, a great marriage, really great marriage. And then they had a daughter, and she's called Lexi, Lexi Jones. And she's about 20 now. And she's been out of the limelight, really. I don't suppose, not many people really know about, about her. Because from what I can remember, um, I think at that time we had sort of Brian Ferry, mm -hmm. Jerry Hall, mm -hmm. Mick Jagger... Mm -hmm. David Bowie, all very glamorous women, glamorous rock stars, all going around the world, fabulous parties, and mm -hmm. it was sort of um, that sort of clique as such. Yeah. So he was married to Angie for quite some time? Ten years. Okay. Well, I don't know how long they were married, but they were, they were in each other's lives for ten years. So that was from 70 to 80. 
And then, obviously, he had relationships. I mean, he was a stunning-looking man. I don't think he had any problems ever in that respect. But then he he met um, Iman. And, um, now, she was a model, wasn't she? Yeah, model, actress. She's. Um, um, I think now she's got a cosmetic company. I think she's quite a, yeah. a wealthy businesswoman. Yes, she is, yes. Yeah. And she always seems to be fairly level-headed. And I think they managed to... I mean, he had a hiatus when he was looking after... And he wanted to be at home for a long time. He had a little heart attack in 2004. And after that, he, he didn't do anything for 10 years. And he was very much a family man at that time. So he managed to keep his daughter out of the limelight, which was great. And even now, you know, she's not... She does her own thing. She, she paints a bit which is something that David Bowie also used to do. He used to do a huge amount of paintings, painting his friends. Some of them are lovely, some of them experimental, um, but he did a lot. He was very interested in art. So his daughter also paints, and then she's also singing a little bit. I've only heard a tiny bit, but I, I couldn't believe it was her. I follow her on Instagram, and she just put up this little snippet, it was like 15 seconds, and she said to everybody, what do you guys think? And everybody was listening to it and saying, okay, and she said, well, it's me. She's like, whoa, you've got a lovely voice. So I imagine that she might start putting out some songs now. Because I should imagine if you are a child of somebody of that calibre, the lifestyle you have, yes, it's very privileged, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to have a good education, travelling the world, mm. but the pressure on you to try and have a normal childhood under those circumstances must be incredible. I think she did have quite a normal childhood because during those, during her formative years, I think Bowie was at home quite a lot or doing his own thing, either painting or, or reading, whatever else um, he did. And I really think he and his wife were there together with her. You know, I don't read magazines like Hello or Ola, but I don't think she or they appeared very often in those magazines. I think they were very careful. I think that's the thing, isn't it? When when you're looking at pop stars, some pop stars are always on the front of a magazine because of a relationship, a, a breakup, a, a drunken party, a fight, or this, that, the other. And other personalities, they're only in there because they've got a new album out or something. That's right, so yeah. I, I think. Is it to do with your personality? Is it to do with your values? Is it to do with your management team? Who knows? Who exactly, knows? Exactly, yes. And how much you want it, you know. I mean, some people, the Kardashians, they always seem to be looking for it, don't they? Um, but other people may not look for it. I mean, Sting, for example, I don't know. I don't even know if he's got children. He might be very quiet and live in his country house. I think there are some people who just are not interested and they might, you know, they might say to the paparazzi, look, please, I'm not interested. Who knows? Yeah. If, if we sort of look back in time, I mean, Karen Carpenter, mm. amazing, amazing mm. voice. Yeah. She died, anorexia, I think she had. Yeah. We've lost Amy Winehouse. Mm. Again, an incredible, talented voice. Yeah, wonderful. And, and I, I always just think with these people, is it their personality? Is it they get caught up in this... Um, I don't know, if you've got enough money to buy anything you want, in the end you must just get so bored because you don't appreciate anything? Or is it people say, okay, you're going to be famous for a short period of three years, we're going to get you out there, you're going to work non-stop, make the money, 
and you're taking pills to keep you awake, pills to send you to sleep for the next performance. I, I don't know how it works. Well, there's some, <laughs> some pretty interesting books out all about that. Um, I've read one, oh, what's it called, Black Vinyl White Powder or something. I was flabbergasted because everybody was taking so much stuff. You know, the Beatles even, they were all, and obviously the Rolling Stones, just taking so much stuff, and David Bowie as well. And it's amazing how some of them are actually still alive, you know. I mean, I think when you look at some of these, I mean, I know with the pandemic, everything is shut down. But often when you look at these artists, they're doing a world tour and they're doing four countries in four days. When you look at sort of how a concert gets put on, they might go to the theatre or the concert venue at sort of five o'clock for a sound check. Then they'll eat then they need to get into their, their costumes, hair and makeup, etc., for them to go on stage at 10 o'clock, on stage for maybe two, three hours. You come off early hours in the morning. You can't just take your makeup and costume off and go to bed. I mean, you've got to come back down. Exactly. Yeah. So your day is literally, you just turn your day from a normal morning, afternoon, evening to something completely on its head. Yeah. The effect of that on the body... Exactly, and you most of the time they probably can't do it without help. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how half of them are still alive, frankly. And I think as well, you know, if you are somebody that famous, he cannot just walk down the street or take a walk around the, the local park. Well, yeah. I mean, David Bowie, for example, um, he used to wear, when he was in the streets in New York, because he lived there for, for many years, he just used to wear tracksuits and a cap it would be really hard to recognise him. Then he had another trick he used to do, carry around a newspaper, a Greek newspaper with him. So if he jumped into a cab, and the cab driver was looking at him, oh, don't I know you? Aren't you David Bowie? Then he would just say, hmm, and show the newspaper and say, no, similar face. Yeah. And then people left him in peace. Yeah. So it was his little trick. So Sarah, can we just talk about the last album? Because... David Bowie had cancer. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what happened there and obviously this last album? Because I think it was released, was it just before or just after yeah, he died? Yeah, just two days before, yeah. Well, so was this a... F I mean, he obviously knew he was ill. But not very, not very many other people did know. Okay. The fans certainly didn't know. Right. You know? Um, David Bowie had... The people around him were very faithful to him. So if he said to them... Don't say anything. Nobody said anything, you know. And he had been making... Let me just go back slightly. There was a movie that he was in called The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is in, like, 1975, a typical alien movie. You know, he was into all that kind of alien lifestyle stars. So, that was called The Man Who Fell to Earth. And in 19... Sorry, in 2000... And 15 there and thereabouts he decided to he got in touch with um endo walsh i think his name was and they wrote um a play and it was about the man who fell to earth but now what had happened to that poor alien because he had never managed to go back to his planet he'd had to stay on earth so all those decades later they wrote this play um together and um he was very very ill while he was doing it and the people who, who were making the, the play with him, they've all said, you know, he used to come along, he was there 100%, making sure this play got off the ground. 
There were times when he couldn't, he couldn't turn up um, to watch the actors doing their rehearsals because he felt so ill. But he was, he was there, he was determined it was going to happen. I actually went to New York with my sons. You know, I had never been to New York and to tell you the truth, never really wanted to. But I heard that this play was going to be on and I said to them, look, we've, we've got to go. Because I thought maybe we can catch a glimpse of him. So we went to, I don't know what it's called, in, is it, it's called a preview, I think. Because obviously the first night was completely sold out, but we went to the previews. And I thought, maybe he'll be there, maybe we can see him. Of course he wasn't. And then that was when, you know, I realised that at that time he had been very ill. So he just managed to make it to the first night, really. But I just thought, wow, you know, there you are, working to almost the last day. And all the, all the, the cast, they were just full of admiration for him. I, I was, um, you know, it was incredible, really. He finished his life the way he started it, you know, working 100% the whole time. That's what I most admire about him, I think, the fact that he was just always working and never sitting back on his laurels. I mean, you said before, he had so many different styles, so many different persona, and that was it. It was like, what can I do next? How can I surprise everybody? What can I give my fans? Of course, a lot of it was for himself as well. He may not have always been thinking of his fans, but just that constant working and educating himself. He was in how many movies? Uh, he was in about 25 movies. Did you know that? No, I didn't. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah, that was it. He loved performing. So, and he, you know, he worked at cameo roles as well in movies like Zoolander, for example, um, which you might have seen. I don't know if you know Ricky Gervais. Yes. But um, he was in Extras. They were quite good friends. And Ricky said, um, I'm going to write this song and you've got to sing it. And so Bowie sings this really cruel little song about Ricky Gervais <laughs> that Ricky himself wrote. He did so much with other people and he helped other people along the way as well, you know. He collaborated with so many people. So he was always looking for the next project. What can I do now? What, what can, as you say, what can I give my fans? What am I interested in? Exactly, yeah. Reading. You know, there's a book called Bowie's Bookshelf. All the books that influenced him. He was an avid reader. Um, you know, he left school with one O-level. But that didn't mean he didn't want to educate himself. If you look on YouTube, the interviews with him, the later ones, you can see what an intelligent and um, interesting and interested person. So, can we just talk was. about this last album, ah, yes, Black okay. Star? Yeah. Well, um, so Black Star came out. The actual single came out a couple of months before. When we were in New York, we heard the single, and it was like, "Oh, this is interesting." And then the album came out, as you said before, two days before he died. And we were listening to it. I was listening to it and thinking, "Oof, you know, look up here. I'm in heaven." Um, I can't give everything away. If I never see the English landscape, so, oof, wow. and then he goes and dies. So do you think, talking about the lyrics there, this was his final album and he made it as a final album? Definitely. Definitely. There's a couple of videos that you can see and there's one of them where he's, he's in a bed he looks very ill and he's kind of rising out of the bed, you know, like Lazarus. And he gets out of the bed and he's quickly scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. And the end of the video, he just goes into a wardrobe and that's it. And you look at that and you think, my God, you know, he's scribbling probably because he's got so many ideas he still has to write down. And he goes into the wardrobe and that's just the end of him. So he knew 
his time was coming to an end and he was putting all of that down into this final album yeah 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 i mean if you then you know after he died then of course everybody went and looked more closely at the lyrics and you could really you could really see what it was all about yet he knew and he was saying goodbye and it was like you know you haven't planned your death but you're making sure you go out in a very special way I mean, while you were talking about that, I'm thinking of the show Must Go On with Freddie Mercury from Queen. Exactly, exactly, And I was watching a documentary not so long ago and they were telling the story Mm -hmm. and they were saying, you know, how exhausted he was and just literally trying to get him in just to do the final video, Mm -hmm. but he was in lots of very thick stage makeup because he was so ill. Mm -hmm. But again... That was a message. He he knew his days were coming to an end Mm -hmm. and the lyrics of that as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. So is there any significance in the name Black Star? Um, Gosh, I'm not sure. I mean, there's been some people have said things like it. I think Elvis Presley might have had a song called Black Star and Elvis Presley shares David Bowie's birthday. Or the fact that it's in in the sky, and he always loved, you know, star man, stardust, and that may be the black star, because the star's gone out. I'm not sure. So there probably is some significance there somewhere of that final album. And if there isn't, you can make it up. Because he always said, you know, people try and find, they look into my lyrics, I just write them. They look into them and they find all kinds of meanings which I had never, you know, intended to be there. You know, he, he think, I think he found it quite amusing himself. He said, very often these lyrics have just been done with the cut-up method. I'll just take a letter, I'll take a newspaper, I'll cut them up and then I'll reshuffle them and, okay, I've got this strange lyric. And then somebody will say, oh, that must mean this. And he'll be thinking, okay. So whether Black Star meant anything, I don't know. Wow. So do you think Black Star would be one of his best albums, do you think? That's a really difficult question, because if you're talking about musically, now I have to admit that I've always loved him and his voice, and I'm not somebody who says, oh, there's Carlos Alomar doing a really good whatever on the guitar. No. So musically, I imagine it's absolutely fantastic. There's a lot of jazz in there. He was working with Danny McCaskill, I think his name is, who's a jazz musician. And anybody who understands about music will probably say, oh, yes, this is so professional and fantastic. But for me, it's just a very emotional album. So I can't say if it's his best or not. It's it's quite difficult to listen to. That's the truth. And and did you rush out and buy the album? Did you have it on pre-order? I had it on order, yeah. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah. The day it came out, I had it in my grubby little fingers, yeah. So I was able to listen to it thoroughly, you know, in those two days before he died, which is why... Anybody who bought it afterwards and hadn't heard it only knows it as an after-death album. But we had those two days to be listening to it and thinking, gosh, what's all this about? And then, okay, now we know what all this is about. So you've spent a majority of your life being a huge fan of David. Where were you when you heard the news of his passing? I was at home. And it was really strange because I got a WhatsApp message from a friend and all she said was, I'm so sorry. And I thought, okay, I know my children are okay. So your mind was just running right. No, I knew. I knew what it was. You knew? Yeah, immediately. Because the only only time anybody would say that is if something had happened to my kids, perhaps. 
but I knew it wasn't them. I thought it has to be David Bowie. So I went to the um, to internet, and there it was. It was a, it was a bad moment. <laughs> wow. The thing is, it was a bad moment for so many people. That's that's the thing. Everybody rushed out. You know, I listen to BBC Radio Six a lot, and um, they had so many people talking about him. You know. Musicians, obviously, writers, actors, everybody coming out and saying, you have no idea what an influence he was on my life. You have no idea what a wonderful guy he was. Charming, so full of character, so humorous, always there for you. So many people. I was, I was astounded. And not only you know, older people, but younger people, younger musicians, who said, you know, without David Bowie, I would be nothing. And it was this outpouring, you know, it was just incredible. I mean, that is quite a legacy because I know when somebody dies, you know, they bring out the teacher or somebody who met him once and you think, yeah, okay, that's fine. But as you say, he had such an effect and an influence on so many generations, so many different reinventions, whether you liked him in, in this period or that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And he always came across as, as a, a very, he was always very well spoken. He always came across as, as a decent person. Yes, I mean, I'm sure there were the parties and the drugs and of the course. sex drugs and rock and roll, absolutely. But he always sort of came across as a genuinely nice person. Yeah. That's what, that's what everybody says. Journalists say the same. Very polite, you know, never offhand, really engaging the journalist and pretending to be interested in all the same old questions, you know. Very few people have a bad word to say about him, at least about, I'm sure they have plenty to say when he was on drugs, you know, because that does terrible things to a person's character. But that was, you know, a few years. But since then, you know, everybody has, it's full of admiration. And how old was he when he died, Sarah? 69. Right, so he actually did die very, very early. Yes. I mean, 69 is no age now, is it? No, it isn't. And, I mean, this this is going to sound terrible, but although it was horrible, in a way, it's not the worst thing to die when you're still creating music and your brain is still functioning and people still admire you and you haven't gone past it, you know? He's never going to get old and decrepit. He's never going to do crappy music or anything. That's it. He had a, a good run for his money. And everything he's done has been fantastic. Well, nearly everything. Okay, there are a couple of <laughs> albums that maybe, you know, 99% of what he's done has been fantastic. And that's it. That's the legacy, as you mentioned. That's the word. So just to sum this conversation up, Sarah, how would you describe David Bowie? David Bowie, David Bowie. <laughs> I'm still not pronouncing it correctly. Oh, God, what a question. How would I describe him? Um... I mean, you've grown up with his music. Yeah. You've amassed a huge collection. I'm sure whenever I I see anything now with him, I will get it for you. So God knows what you're going to get. Well, that's what happens. People always say, I'm thinking of you. That's it. I I saw this and thought of you. On a personal level, I would just say a huge, huge piece of my life. You know, that's it really. And that's still carrying on because you've got the books, you've got the music. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Really, it's the music more than anything else, you know. Okay, yes, the books and the lighters and the socks, they're all fun. I've, you know, the lovely photographs I have at home, 
but it's the music more than anything else. And one last question. If you had ever had the chance to meet him, what would you have asked him or what would you have said to him? Oh, okay. So you have to think of something that he hasn't been asked before. Well, not necessarily. Well, I would probably... Or you could just be starstruck and just say nothing. <laughs> I'd probably say to him, I'd probably ask him, um, what's your signature dish? What do, you cook oh. for, what do you cook for your wife? Oh, brilliant. Something <laughs> completely random. And he'll go, do you know, no one has ever asked me that. That's what I would hope, you know. Yeah. So, but yes, I would probably be pretty, pretty starstruck. Or people often say to me, if you'd seen him in the street, what would you have said? And I would say, and I say to them, I wouldn't have said anything. I would have left him in peace. I'd have respected his anonymity and just looked at him, known I'd seen him in the flesh, in the street, whatever. And I wouldn't have gone up to him. I think he would have deserved that. Well, Sarah, it's been so, so interesting. Well, you know, and such a short amount. There is so much to say about the man. Fascinating man. So if anybody's interested, go online and watch some, watch some video interviews, you know, and you'll get to know him a little bit better. Well, what I'll do is I'll ask you to give me some links to mm -hmm. YouTube videos list of albums or books or anything and I, I can put those in the uh, oh, okay. on the podcast right, information right. Mm -hmm. yeah Sarah it's been for me I actually know nothing about him or very very little so for me it's been such an education it's been absolutely brilliant thank you so much for being a guest well nobody ever has to thank me for talking about David Bowie <laughs> okay well thank you very much for having me on your well, you are very welcome. Thank you very much, Sarah. I hope you have enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget, if you have a story you would like to tell, please get in touch. My email address is allaboutyoupodcast at yahoo.com and thank you for listening.